Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I am so happy and grateful to have Cindy Rude with us here today, who is the founder and executive director of Formidable Joy, an LA-based grassroots nonprofit whose sole mission is to provide access to clean water in Malaya, Africa. It was Cindy's love of travel that led her her to a life of service. She has traveled through the world, 60 plus countries and counting. However, the more off the beaten path she traveled, the more poverty she saw and the more she could no longer unsee it. She wanted to do something to make a difference. She found that the simplest solution and most cost-effective way to improve the health and overall quality of life for people is to provide schools and communities access to clean water. To date, she has personally completed over 100 water projects throughout 17 districts in Malawi remote villages, primary and secondary schools, health centers, and say that name, Cindy, the refugee camp? Uh, Zaleka. Zaleka refugee camp, the largest refugee camp in Malawi, and the only state-of-the-art children's hospital in Malawi have all benefited from her work. Oftentimes, the beneficiaries in remote communities were formerly collecting their water through rivers, streams, unincorporated wells, or by digging holes in the ground. Some of her notable projects include three new, three additional new water points at Zalakia refugee Zalaka. camp. Home to 38,000 residents. <laughs> the installation of solar water system at Mercy James Pediatric Center built by, Bonata, by Madonna in 2017. The installation of a new backup water system for the maternity ward of the largest hospital in the country. 12,000 babies are born there each year. Wow. That the hospital can go days without water. Whew. And she is just getting started. Cindy is also an active member within other nonprofits, including UNICEF, chair of the Speaker Series Committee in Los Angeles. Freedom to Choose Project, volunteer at Men's and Women's Prisons, Rotary Club of Beverly Hills, International Committee Member of WASREG, Water Community Member, District Water Committee Member. Prior to her life in nonprofit, Cindy was an executive at Warner Brothers Consumer Products. She resides in Los Angeles with her husband and two teenage sons. Cindy, welcome and thank you so very much for being here. Thank you. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? Sorry. <laughs> no, no, don't apologize because, you know, I have to tell you, I find it so fascinating hearing people's bios and their stories. And I, 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 I had to pause reading yours because I just, 12,000 babies born each year and they can go days without water. Can you imagine? No. And I just like, I'm getting really emotional even imagining that right now because I think of I think of like my daily struggles. Yeah. Right. And it's just like my, my, I feel like so many of my struggles and stresses are such luxuries in the grandma scheme of things, because I have no worry about basic survival needs. I have no right. worry about a roof over my head, food in my refrigerator, clean water to drink. And, and so in so doing, it leaves me the opportunity to stress out about other things, have anxiety about other things because I'm not having to worry about my survival and the idea that there's 12,000 babies born in a place where you can go days without water. And then I consider the level of care that friends who have recently had children in the United States have talked about. And I, I remember the local hospital in Santa Barbara, a friend of mine, when they, they, they had their ba- baby in the very new maternity ward, they said it's like staying at the Ritz-Carlton. They were there for how many days? There was like five-star dining. You could have everything came to it. It was all inclusive. You could have as much food as you wanted. What a contrast. 
Yeah. Imagine 12,000 babies. We actually, that was um, last year's maternity wing project that we did. And then we actually just finished one about two weeks ago. And that hospital, they only deliver 5,000 babies a wow. year. But it's also the same situation where they can go definitely hours a day with no water. That happens almost daily. And then they could go days. So we installed yet another backup system for a maternity wing in another hospital. So even if the entire hospital goes without water for those hours or those days, at least at a minimum, the maternity wing, and now I just got the chills, at least the maternity wing will not be without water. So, you know, when you think about, you don't have to ever think about this, but when you think about giving birth and the ripple effects of not having water, you know, what if you need to have a C-section and how do you clean the, how do you clean the, um, the, uh, I can't even think right now, <laughs> the, the utensils that are needed for the surgery and, you know, how do you, how do doctors wash their hands? So it's such a big ripple effect. Um, again, and we're just talking about the hospital. So imagine living day to day, not, you know, not having access to water. It's something that we absolutely take for granted. And I know I do. I know I did. I used to take my 20, 20 minute, you know, hot showers. Um, I think twice about those now. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, we absolutely take it for granted that, you know, our dog has cleaner water than some people in the world. Yeah. I mean, even as you're talking, I'm thinking about my process of getting water just before we, we chatted where I have the tap water that comes out, which is clean and completely drinkable. So just going and turn the faucet on. And that is even then that I go take it and put it through a filter that drips right. and filters it out to make it better, cleaner, healthier, whatever it's supposed to do. And just thinking of this, boy, I have to really take a breath and compose myself here. Like this is really hitting me in the feels. Aww. I just, you know, I don't want this to be like a soapbox tangent or anything, but I, I also think that so many of our problems that many of us face in the U.S. could be anecdoted with a dose of healthy dose of perspective. Totally. Yeah. Right. And, it, and, it, and I, I want to ask you, so I don't want to fill in your, your words for this, but I can imagine uh, my, you know, I remember always hearing people talk about stories of going across to other countries and they come back from really poor areas and they would talk about how, how incredibly happy people were there who had nothing. And why is it that we're so, we're so hard to have happiness here? And I remember vividly, and I think I shared with this you before about going to Haiti and seeing people post earthquake who had absolutely nothing, who had been, who had lost loved ones, who if they had anything, it was in a half, half full hefty bag. And they were singing and dancing and celebrating if they could get up and move at night. And I remember walking across the field watching this and I had just been in my head because uh, I had, had gone through a breakup. My girlfriend had left me and there'd been some other things that happened that I had in my head made into such large, big things. And that's not to say, you know, ending a relationship is not a large, big thing, but it was the other stuff about it. The stuff I was telling myself, well, what does it mean about me? Am I not lovable? All those kinds of things. Right. And then I stopped and looked at them and I'm like, my God, like these people are so happy right now with nothing. And what are they doing that I'm not? And I realized it was just, it was, it was almost came down to this piece of like having survival needs met. It, it was, I, we've created so many like man-made metrics of happiness in this country where happiness is the car you drive, your, your zip code, the roof over your head, who your social circle is, 
right? Uh, what microphone you're using for your podcast saying all those types of stuff. Like you and I were joking around about our lighting beforehand, you know, like considering those kinds of things. First world problems, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Massively so. And it's just, when I think of that in context of, of 12,000 babies being born and can go days without water, it just, yeah, I, I'm, I really am present to that right now. I am, yeah. I'm so present to it. So maybe we could start with you, like going to 60 plus countries. What was your kind of aha moment where you said you could no longer stand by and do nothing? What was it? Was it like you would go somewhere and you'd see these contrasts when you would come back to the States? What was coming up for you? What was kind of your aha moment that you had to start to do something? Well, I, I, at the end of the day, I think Malawi was the icing on the cake for me because like I said, I had been to 60 countries and Again, and like you, you said in my bio, the more off the beaten path you get, the more you really do experience poverty. And mm. to your point about Haiti, like no matter where I went to these countries that these, you know, impoverished countries, the people you encountered were so happy. They are just the happiest people that you've ever seen. And so, uh, sorry if I zig and I zag, but the name of the organization is called Formidable Joy. And the name of the organization is absolutely named after the people of Malawi. Because these are people, like you said, who have absolutely nothing, and they are so, so full of joy. And again, to your point, you know, how many people do we know that have absolutely everything, and they're miserable? So there's a lot that we can learn from these people. And, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of secrets that I don't know to their happiness. But one thing that I absolutely believe is that their sense of community is like no other. So mm. they take care of each other. And I think that's something that sometimes we miss, you know, especially living in a big city like LA, you know? Um, so to me, sense of community is what makes these people so happy also. That, I could be wrong, you know, maybe they were just born this way, but um, I don't think so. And, and it's not like phony either. It's not like they're just happy when I walk, you know, I show up or something, you know, because I get videos from the field all the time and I'm not even there. And People are singing and dancing once you give them water or the school gets water, the village gets water, they're singing and dancing with gratitude and singing and dancing is kind of what they do. You know, but this is not to downplay the fact that they don't have unbelievable problems and they are complex people just like me and you they are not happy and sad they are everything in between just like me and you but they do absolutely feel like they have this this sense of joy this inner joy that i would love a, a piece of you know i'd love to bottle it so um so yeah i i totally agree with you and as far as what is the fine what was the icing on the cake for me um i don't know i just think you keep seeing it you keep seeing it. and at some point you have to go how can i help what can i do about this and then going to Malawi, which was one of my later trips, you know, I'm not going to lie. I, my goal was to go to Malawi and put a check mark next to the country and go, been there, done that. It's a big wide world. Where can I go next? Hmm. But those people, the people there just really drew me in. They just did. You know, this was never my life's goal to be working in Malawi, to be drilling boreholes. I mean, I grew up in Florida. I didn't even know what a borehole was, you know. Um, <laughs> so there is nothing about my background that would suggest this is what I was going to be doing with my life. And I would not trade this for, for anything, 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 you know. I'm, I'm curious, when you would travel before that, when you were going and you hit 60 plus countries, did you feel like that much of the, maybe much, not much, but the, one of the drivers behind traveling was just to travel to say that you got the stamp, you've been there, done that, check it off. And then it sounded like that may have changed to it becoming something where traveling took a, a deeper, more meaningful purpose to you, for you. Yeah. 
So I don't, I don't like to travel just to say I travel. I truly love it. And what I love most about it is the people that you meet along the way, because I love experiencing other cultures. I've been very known to, you know, if I have a driver in another country, just going, hey, can I come to your house? <laughs> and they'll be like, what are you talking about? You know, so I've gone to people's houses in Haiti. I've gone in Oman, um, Ethiopia. I mean, like you name it. And if they invite me or, or sometimes they will invite me, I don't just, you know, ah, show up. But I, I think when people invite you into your, their home, I think it's the greatest compliment there is. And I mm -hmm. think to experience other people's worlds is, I love it. I mean, that's my favorite part about traveling is the people that you meet along the way. It's not, it's not the Eiffel Tower and it's not all that. That stuff is all amazing. But, you know, I, I just love the different cultures and experiencing that. That's my favorite part. I want to, if you don't mind, walk us through that you can no longer unsee what you were seeing piece. It, and I don't want to speak on behalf of everybody else, but I'll just use myself as an example that I know there's been times throughout traveling, especially when I would see poverty where I would feel it, but it was kind of like, I, you know, I've had different stories. I would tell myself to almost excuse myself from having to take action about it. It was, you know, that's their problems. That's, you know, their circumstances. I don't want to get involved. Uh, you should be really grateful for what you have. Gosh, you know, and, and even saying like really rude things like what a dump, what a this, you know, anything I could do to kind of remove myself from it. And I'm wondering for you, what was it that, was it the joy of the people in Malawi that really set it off? Or what was it for you that where you had that breaking point where, or if it was a breaking point, I don't want to put words in your mouth of it shifting from you could you know, fill in the blank what word it is for you. You could kind of accept that this was how it was. You could accept poverty here. You could understand that that was a part of life there. But then all of a sudden, it's, it's you go to Malawi and you're like, wait, this isn't acceptable anymore. Right, yeah. So went to Malawi, uh, volunteered in an orphanage for a week. And that's where I kind of, uh, you know, like I said, fell in love with the people. A year later, uh, I was in Nicaragua uh, with another smaller water charity. And that's when I kind of started to live and breathe water. And even though we all know, you know, I, once you see it with your own eyes and you're like, wait, people have to get up at five in the morning and carry 40 pounds of water on their heads and do it again three times a day. So that's when the whole water piece really clicked. Then cut to the person that uh, I originally was in Malawi with uh, was building a property there and, need, and needed water. So I kind of married the two organizations, but I started going back and forth to Malawi to attend different meetings with contractors and villagers and the driller. And honestly, like Jesse, I had zero business plan. I had zero forethought. I just turned to the driller one day who became like a very, we had this great rapport. He's Malawian. And I turned him one day and I go, I'll fundraise, you drill, let's help people. And mm. he goes, okay. And that was the business plan right there. And, you know, listen, if we could get him on right now, he will tell you this crazy lady is going to do like one, maybe two projects with me and I'll never see her again because that's kind of what they're used to. They're used to people coming in, getting super excited, doing something and leaving and you never see them again. And, um, you know, it's funny because on Thanksgiving, I even, now I'm going to cry. On Thanksgiving, I sent him a note and I said, this is Thanksgiving and this is when we give thanks to so many people in our lives. And I texted him, I said, I'm so grateful that you came into my life. I said, could you and I ever have foreseen what we have done together, you know? Um, because we've, I, like I said, I've, I've worked on over a hundred water projects in Malawi so far with like, a, 
with no experience. I am not a water chemist. I am not a hydrologist. I am not a celebrity. I am not a trust fund baby, but I'd be a really good one. Um, so <laughs> I am none of, none of those things, you know? So um, I'm just, I saw this need and kind of went for it. And, and I, I always started the organization with if only was kind of my motto, if only. If I only raise enough money to help one village, this is going to all be worth it, you know? Mm. So I had nothing to lose, if only. I only, the bar was low. I only had to do one project and then I felt like this was all worth it. So, you know, now cut to this year alone, we did 40 projects and schools, villages, another hospital like you, know, like you talked about. Um, and I never saw this coming ever, ever, ever. And I hope I can do this till I'm old and gray and... Um, you know, ultimately the goal would be to hand it over to somebody in Malawi because I think this, this, is, this should be them who do this. Um, so that would be the long-term goal is to hand this over to a woman um, in Malawi who could kind of take this. That's my goal. Do you have, I'm curious, so over a hundred water projects and I'm just looking at some of your numbers. So with three projects at the, the refugee camp leading up to 38,000 people. I'm wondering how many people are directly or indirectly impacted by a hundred plus water projects throughout the country. Is it in the. Yes. So I, I, in about like two weeks, I'll have my exact numbers, but um, up until this year, it was about 137,000 people and wow. we'll be well over 150,000 people this year. Not, not just this year alone, but in total, because you imagine if you help a hospital, you know, there's 12,000 babies right there. You help plus their moms, you know, there's yeah. 24,000 people you're helping right there. When you, when you help a hospital, that's one of the biggest impact. Um, some of these schools have a thousand kids in them. Some of the villages can have 500 people in them, a thousand people. Um, yeah. So definitely over 150,000 people have been impacted so far. Just to, and that's, that's so incredible, Cindy. And I'm wondering if we give some context, a greater context to that for folks listening, watching. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that. I remember reading a book, and this was a book, it was on uh, how to make a persuasive argument. And it was talking about, there was a, there was somewhere in Africa, I'm blinking on where the name was, but they had a really hard time with a, a parasite called guinea worm. Guinea worm would get into the water and then people would go and drink it. And so they were talking about how, they're trying to eradicate guinea worm, guinea worm from this village. And when they went in, the scientists went in and just said, here, you, this is what you need to do. They were saying, no, 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 you can't do that. So they had to find the, the tribal chief or the medicine person or whomever it was, somebody who was of influence in the village and have that person become early adopter to be able to do it. And then with that, once they had that early adopter and then it started to change culture with that. The reason I want to lead with that is because I'm wondering these 150,000 plus people that have been impacted from your, your, your various projects throughout the country, what would they have to do before this? Because I'm imagining some of them were probably having to deal with similar things as that those people were with the guinea worm were they dealing with waterborne parasites or you mentioned they're going and traveling and having to carry 40 pounds of water on their back every day what was a day in their life prior like prior to having accessible to clean and safe water yeah and, and they all vary you know um there are situations where they're getting their water from the rivers the streams um which they actually have to share with animals who also get their water there um, sometimes they are digging holes in the ground to get to the water table and that's where they get their water. Sometimes maybe they just have to share their water source with another village. So yes, they do have to walk however long. It could be 
10 minutes, it could be 30 minutes, you never know. So I talked to one woman who had to travel almost an hour to get to the river for her water and come back. Um, sometimes maybe they do have water in their village, but maybe they only have that one water source. And again, if there's a thousand people in the village, you need to add another water source. Or what happens in some schools is that the schools won't have water on their campus, but they'll have to share their water with the community. Well, it's not a school borehole. So if the kids are thirsty in the middle of school and they want to run, let's just say it's, let's say it's only five minutes away, 10 minutes away. But again, if you have a first grader, do you want them running 10 minutes off campus to go get a drink of water? So, you know, and then you have to share it with the community, but the community will be like, no, 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 this is our water. You know, you don't get to have it even though it's their kids who live in the community. So mm. every single situation is different um, from the drastic of, to me, the most drastic, if you have to dig a hole in the ground to get your water is the most drastic to having to share your water source with however many people and it becomes too congested. So, and then in the hospitals, you know, these, you know, I want people to know, they, do the hospitals have water? Yeah, they do. They are given water through the water board. However, for whatever reason, and I know there's lots of different reasons, the water will be shut off several hours a day. So, you know, if it's your turn to have surgery at two o'clock and that's when all the water's turned off, you're not having your surgery. Wow. You know? Yeah. So it, the cases are always different. Yes. Yeah. And I've seen, I, you know, I've seen firsthand them drinking this god awful dirty water because what choice do they have? And then when you have dirty water, then you have to cut down more trees to boil, boil the water until it's safe to drink. And so, you know, here we go back again to the ripple effect, you know. I'm curious, Cindy, how has your life changed as you've, as you've begun to give and do more for others? As you've amassed these hundred plus projects and you've fundraised and given and traveled over there and done more, how has your life changed because of that? Well, I think the people who sacrifice the most is not me, it's my family. I have two children, but they're teenage boys now, so they're 18 and 16. Um, so, you know, I go to Malawi three to four times a year, and I stay for roughly a month at a time. Um, so that's changed a lot. Mom's not home as much. Again, thank God they're older teenagers, so as long as I leave money, you know, they're fine. Um, and then Plenty my husband, <laughs> yeah, they're fine. Trust me. They're totally fine. If they, if they were little, I couldn't do this. I just wouldn't mm. want to be away from them, you know? So, um, and honestly, like if I'm being super honest, you know, I would say I border on obsession because this has become my full-time job. I start at five o'clock in the morning because we're a 10 hour difference from Malawi. So at five o'clock in the morning, my WhatsApp is already blowing up or I have a phone call or whatever. And by the time I'm going to bed, then they're all waking up and then they're texting me again. So I, I work really hard on this. I really do. But like I said before, I wouldn't trade it for anything. There's nothing else I'd rather do. I noticed when you said, I work really hard on this, you kind of set up a little teller. You had a little bit of bounce and a big smile on your face. And I think that's <laughs> such a different thing than when a lot of entrepreneurs or business owners or people, when I talk to them and they say, yeah, I work really hard on this. It's usually something like, yeah, I work really hard on this. It's, it's, and it's not to say that they don't love or have the passion about it. It's just that they've gotten so bogged down in maybe the minutia of it. And there's not maybe the deeper personal purposeful connection to it. It's more of like the, their why behind it is different. Whereas yours, it just, it, it seems like it really, it's evident how much it lights you up. It, uh, it absolutely does. I mean, when my friends see pictures of me there, they're like, you just look so happy when you're there. You're so happy. And I am so happy. You know, I mean, 
the biggest payoff to me is when you are there and you get to see the people celebrating their new water sources. I mean, that's my paycheck. My paycheck, I don't take a salary. So my paycheck is bearing witness to hmm. the celebrations. It is, there is no greater joy. And even though I'm getting choked up right now, I want you to know that I've seen um, so much poverty and I've seen people at their, not their worst, but living in their worst but I never cry. I never, ever cry when I see that. The only time I cry is at those celebrations and it's just nothing but tears of joy. And then I also cry every time we drill for water and the water comes sprouting out, I'll start crying. And the drillers make fun of me all the time. They're like, why are you crying? I'm like, this is amazing, <laughs> you know? So I'm a softie when it comes to that. <laughs> kind of just, it just begs the inquiry of what would our lives be like if we all celebrated when we turned on the sink and water came out. I know. Like we really took the time to be present to what's really happening there. Not uh, just water coming out to wash the dishes, not even like actually life is coming out. If you think about the most basic biological thing that we have life coming out of a faucet, that's literally just one little turn away and we have an abundance of it. Right. And just if we, if we, could bridge that gap of it just being something we expected to really appreciating and having that, that celebratory level of appreciation for what is actually happening in front of us, like how it would transform how we experience life and the depth of joy and happiness that many in America struggle to feel might be able to feel if we would make that connection. I know. Why do we save it just for Thanksgiving to give thanks for people and experiences in our lives, you know, um, once again, you know, these are people who have nothing, right. But every, almost every time we go to one of these celebrations, they are always giving me a gift. Mm. So I have been given goats and lambs and more chickens than I could ever eat. And last week we just were given like this huge thing of bananas and tomatoes and fruit. And, you know, I just think that's such, so beautiful. You know, people with nothing to give still find a way to give gratitude. And to me, I don't, I don't need any of that. To me, it's, this is such a privilege and an honor to be able to do this, that that's, that's all the gratitude I need, you know. What does it mean to you to receive those gifts from them? Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful because I know giving up a chicken is a really big deal. It's a big deal. And if, and, and, if you give a goat, that's even a bigger deal. You know, they don't imagine most of these people aren't getting protein every day by any means. So to give up an animal like that is a really big deal. Although I have to tell you, one community gave me a, a lamb and I became a little attached to the lamb. Um, so he's still alive and I have somebody taking care of him. He has a wife and a child now. Um, <laughs> but every time I go back to Malawi, I go see my lamb. His name is Fernando. Uh, <laughs> <Man doesn't land. laughs> so yeah it's really funny that's incredible for people who want to learn more to get involved what what would be their first step what should they do yeah i would love i am really great at con uh, getting back to anybody who contacts me so um you can go on our instagram which is formidable joy org and dm me um our website is formidablejoy.org, um, Facebook, Formidable Joy Org. Uh, you can reach out to me directly, and it's Cindy with two E's, Creative Parents, C-I-N-D-E-E -E at formidablejoy.org. And like I said, I will absolutely get back to you and 
you know, if, if somebody out there wants to volunteer their time or their talent, I know this is a crazy year and a lot of us have the budget blues, but um, you can always donate your time or your talent, if not your treasures this year. So. Cindy, I love your wordsmithing that you throw in there, the creative parents and the budget blues all in two sentences and on top of the other ones you were sharing with me beforehand. I'm getting really jealous of your word pairings and how quickly you're coming up with them right now. <laughs> Or is it because I use them a lot? One of the oh, two. no, no, I really like it because I always try to think, oh, I could be really clever if I link words together that have the same, the same vowel they start with or whatever it is. And right. I, I'm loving the budget blues and the creative parents you throw in there. <laughs> what, what is your vision? So you mentioned that you want to eventually get this to a point where it's, it's turned over and somebody there is running it. But for the next two to three years, where do you envision this growing? How do you envision Formidable Joy growing? How do you envision it to continue to serve the, the people and I know you said that when you started, it was as simple as, hey, I can fundraise, you drill. And I'm, now it's evolving beyond that. How does, and does having a, do you find now as you grow, having a vision and expanding that vision, does it become a more effective North Star to see where you need to devote your time, energy, effort more? Yeah, so I absolutely want to grow. That is big giant on my vision board. Um, the, the biggest way for me to grow is to get corporate sponsors involved because they have, here I go again, they have funny money. They have so much money, all of these corporations that, um, and to me, that's how you grow is to get corporations involved. Um, so that's one of my really big goals in 2021. Um, and I also want to be like really clear that all of these projects happen because I have such incredible partners on the ground. You know, I do not just show up to Malawi and go, who wants water? Um, I have incredible partners and they know the needs of the schools, of the villages, of everybody around them. And they identify the places that we should look to. So I don't want anyone to think I just show up and start handing out, you know, boreholes to everybody. It's not the case. Um, but absolutely, I want to grow. I have no intentions of slowing down. Um, I want to get corporate partners involved so I can do bigger projects and do more solar projects, which cost a lot more money, um, but they impact a lot more people as well. So that's another big goal. In a perfect world, I'd love to expand to other countries, but um, there's such a need in Malawi right now that there's, there's no reason for me to expand. And also back to the partners that I have, such amazing relationships and partners there that I would be starting all over if I went to a new country. Um, but again, you know, if if, if I could do it, I would love other countries as well. Yeah. So I have no intentions of slowing down. Um, I only want to grow. I only want to help more people. I only want to do more projects with more partners. So. What, out of curiosity, I'm not familiar enough with Malawi. What is the population of the country? It's roughly 19 million. 19 million. Yeah. And they guesstimate around 30% lack the access uh, to clean water. So you figure right around 6 million. Um, wow. So, you know, it's a very niche market, right? Yeah, I am, lots of work to do. Yeah, exactly. So 10,000 miles away for a country of 19 million, drilling boreholes 150 feet below the Earth's surface. I definitely found a niche <laughs> market and job for myself. Before I ask my final questions, Cindy, where can people find and connect with you? Where's the best place for them to go with that? Yeah, so on the website, formidablejoy.org, or email me, cindy at formidablejoy.org, or again, social media. I live a lot on Instagram, and I post a lot on Instagram, trying to give everybody updates and stories and try to show before and after or, you know, talk about, highlight the partners. So that's a really good place to go. I'm, I'm very active on Instagram, mostly. I, I 
really don't want this time to end, but I want to be respectful of your time. And I want to be respectful of everybody's listening and watching. And I definitely took a couple minutes trying to gather myself in the very beginning. So maybe we can end with this. I'm wondering, I find that many people, when they begin something new, even if they feel that it's what they're called for, even if they know their heart is what they're saying, this is what you need to do. They inevitably reach that point of self-doubt or questioning self. Am I crazy? This is nuts. What the heck? You know, probably why your friend was laughing about it because they, they're used to people coming over all full of vim and vigor. That was a one I tried to throw in there for you. And then petering out very quickly with it too because uh, emotion it's really interesting and i think especially in the united in first world countries we've become so conditioned to relying on external to manufacture internal rather than manufacturing internally taking externally which is what i think where the real power of emotion is but we're relying on all this other stimulus to come in and affect us and then do something with it so my i'm curious with you is if did you ever have a moment like that or moments like that early on where you're questioning yourself what the hell am i doing this is crazy and then was there a moment or moments where all of a sudden you knew with absolute certainty that this is what you're supposed to do? You had to keep going. Maybe there was a, a certain person that you met or a child that you encountered, something like that, that then it just set everything right. And you said, yeah, this is it. Yeah. So let's be clear. Um, definitely weekly. I say, what am I doing? What am I thinking? you know, this is crazy. I, I think anybody who starts something says that if not daily, weekly, monthly, a lot, I say it. And my husband does a really good impression of me because like I said, every morning I wake up at five o'clock in the morning to a WhatsApp and you know, I don't always get great news. Right. So there are days where I'm like, Oh, or I'm like, Oh my God, you know? So, uh, it's, it's absolutely high highs and low lows and everything in between. Um, but I go back to, and so yes, do I second guess this sometimes? Absolutely. But I know without a shadow of a doubt, there's nothing else I would rather do. No way. And again, I go back to every single time I am in country, which 2020 is killing me because I'm not there. Um, it, it reinforces everything. It reinforces everything. You know, it's all worth it when you see these people getting access to water. It's completely worth it. Yeah. So... I can't wait for 2020 to be over so I can get back. Everyone, boy, is this one that if it touched your heartstrings to anything like it did mine, you're going to want to rewatch and re-listen and really dive into the incredible work that they're doing, Cindy and Formidable Joy are doing. She took us on an incredible journey today, didn't she? Talking about her initial travels of 60 plus countries and then all of a sudden ending up in Malawi and thinking at first it was just going to be something where you check the stamp off and experience it and realizing that there was something much much more important and much bigger than her work that she had to do there and a calling that she wasn't willing to ignore. I love that she talked about not being able to see what she once saw and actually leaning into what maybe was on her heart. And I think that's such a really authentic human experience that many of us have experienced at one time, whether it's walking down the street in our own neighborhood and seeing the homeless person on the street or going to other countries and seeing extreme poverty. Many of us have been affected by stuff that we've seen and experienced in the world, but we can somehow rationalize it and make ourselves okay with it so we can go home and sleep at night. I, I've certainly done and do this myself. And there's not to say that there's anything good, bad, right, or wrong about that. What it is to say is it might be something that if you draw inspiration from what Cindy shared with today, 
it's draw inspiration to explore that which comes up for you because there might just be something bigger than yourself knocking at the door. And that's why you keep seeing and feeling and resonating with these things, these experiences, you know, the idea of water and having life coming out of your faucet every day. Gosh, I'm still just so blown away about 12,000 babies and not having access to water. And that's, that's a hospital. And I can imagine of the 19 million people of which 30% are not having access to clean water, what some of those stories must, must be like for other places that Cindy has yet to reach and other organizations haven't reached and what they must be going through and dealing with. And I think this invites the exploration that you don't have to have a perfect business plan or a clear cut vision to begin something. All you have to do is have an, a desire of feeling and trust with that. And something as simple as, hey, I fundraised, you want to drill? can lead to an incredible thing. And most people, I think, when they really follow their heart, they don't necessarily have the notion that however many years later, they're going to be sitting there saying, we've, we've done over 100 water projects. What they start with is just the first one. And I say that with all my heart because I think what Cindy's doing is so incredible. And I think that she is an example of the capacity that many of us have to do extraordinary things to make extraordinary differences. But oftentimes, we get so overwhelmed in the details that we never take the first step or action. And what one of my favorite pieces of this whole conversation with Cindy today is she had about as little detail as possible where she took that first step. It was simply, hey, if I do this, will you do this? And then with that first yes, they started creating something, something that has now reached 150,000 plus people that allows families have more time together, that keeps children at and schools at home, that provides clean and accessible water to generations and generations to come. And I just, Cindy, this is just such an incredible story. I am so deeply grateful you shared with us today and so incredibly inspired and grateful for what you're doing in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. We will see you next time, everybody, on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to